everyone. It's, um, it's good to see you and be seen by you. Um, it's good to be back. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Denzel. Um, well, I, I, used to, I used to be at Ecclesia. <laughs> um, hence, hence why I say it's good to be back. Um, but it's good to see. I mean, you know, we, we, we weren't, uh, like we, like we weren't uh, kind of uh, here too long ago. So it's good to see uh, newer faces. Uh, uh, here, and um, we're blessed that you're here. Um, uh, we're, we're continuing in our series on the church, um, focusing on the church, what the church is, who the church is, uh, why the church exists, what does it do, what is it for, and um, I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, in order to prepare, I've had to listen to, to some sermons, and it's, it's, been a, it's been a blessing to me. And so, um, yeah, I'm just going to just go straight into the text today. Uh, we're in Romans 12, uh, 1 to 13. Uh, Romans 12, 1 to 13. And I'm going to read and pray and uh, say some things, and hopefully God will uh, help us uh, to understand his word a bit better. Amen. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a second just to turn there. <clears throat> Romans 12, 1 to 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, this is God's word to us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for uh, this week that we have just gone through. Um, and we thank you for your word. Thank you that you choose to speak to us uh, through uh, these means, and I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would water our hearts today. Help us, Lord, 
um, to understand and, and to see your word clearly. Um, I pray that you would give us listening ears and that we would take your word to heart, that we might live rightly for you and for the body. Uh, we pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen. So uh, today we're looking at um, spiritual gifts in the church. Um, I'll extrapolate on that a bit more later on. Uh, but I've entitled today's service or today's sermon uh, Active Gifted Bodies for the Body. Active Gifted Bodies for the Body. Real Christianity is lived in a body. And that's going to be my double entendre for the, rest of the, for the rest of the service, right? Real Christianity is lived in a body. The Christian faith is not an abstract concept, uh, but is a real time and space, flesh and blood reality that is animated or uh, incarnated in living and moving and breathing bodies. The Christian life is lived in an individual body. Um, as individuals, we are united to God with our relationship with him. Our relationship with him is, is, is personally with him. It's personally restored that we who place trust in Christ individually are loved personally by him, intimately by him. But the Christian faith isn't just an individual thing. Uh, it's also lived in a communal body. So an individual body and a communal body. And we can't divorce the two. We can't put one over the other. And I want to start there because our modern day conception of faith focuses on individuality. It's all about my relationship with God, just me and God. It's very common, increasingly common in our culture. We see the, the self as though it's the sun and everything revolves around the self. Even our relationship with God, uh, God revolves around us as well. Um, I, you know, I work for, for, for London City Mission, and uh, we, we do door knocking. And um, a few weeks ago, I knocked on, on, on some doors and met a, a, a lovely lady who uh, told me she was a Christian, uh, but, but never wanted to be part of any church. And um, she asked what denomination we, uh, you, know, I, you know, I am. Uh, I just said Baptist, and uh, she said, oh, yeah, I need to be baptized, and I was like, yeah, you should do it. You should go and get baptized, and she said, yeah, she's going to go to Israel in order to get baptized so that she doesn't have to be part of any church in, uh, in London, so she's going to go to Israel, get baptized, and then come back um, and <laughs> as an individual Christian, and I guess there's a sense in which we can understand that uh, people can be quite hesitant when it comes to church because people have been genuinely affected by bad experiences within church. Uh, but it's also become too easy to exaggerate the individual body and cop out of the communal body because we excuse ourselves with things like, I'm not a people person, or I can just watch church online, especially since, you know, the pandemic and so on and so forth. It's just become so much easier to, to individualize our religion, individualize our faith. But if we're to understand Christianity or the church properly, and if we are to understand uh, spiritual gifts 
properly, we can't do so with an individualistic mindset. Uh, the individualistic mindset will get it wrong. How so? This is because God's desire in creating the church was not to, to save a collection or a cluster of individuals like you know, an antique collector who goes around uh, you know, car boot sales and, oh, that's nice, picking up that and then picking up this and having a, a, a disjointed uh, collection. God's desire is to have a people for himself, a people who are formed and bound together in God's love, his redemption, his word, and his presence. And so an individualistic mindset will not work because the individual Christian only makes full sense within the communal body in the same way that a link only makes sense within a chain, or a letter only makes sense within a word, or a thread only makes sense within a tapestry. If you have a beautiful tapestry and you isolate one thread, uh, you no longer see the beauty of the tapestry, although that thread is needed to show the beauty of the tapestry. And so I think Paul shows us this double entendre of the individual body and then the communal body in verse 1 and 2 he deals with the individual in verse 3 and uh, to 13 he deals with the communal and so here's my first point God's mercy activates our individual bodies and transforms our minds God's mercy activates our individual bodies and transforms our minds in verse 1, Paul appeals to or urges the church in Rome and by the Holy Spirit to us today that based on the mercies of God, we must present our bodies as living sacrifices to him. So based on the mercy, based on the undeserved compassion of God toward us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A good question we should ask is, what are these mercies of God that Paul is referring to? Um, Paul says, uh, therefore, uh, and usually if there's a therefore, you need to ask what is therefore. And the 11 chapters beforehand detail what these mercies of God are. Every person... All mankind, Jew or Gentile, uh, so Jew or non-Jew, or or even black black Hebrew Israelite, if you're of that persuasion, (laughs) we were all created by a loving God. Everyone instinctively knows this, but refuses to fear and love and obey this loving God. All of us naturally turn from God, choose our own way, and personally break his law. And there is a day in which God will judge each and every one of us, and that either will lead to peace with God, or it will lead to wrath and separation from God forever. In our broken world, everyone cries for justice. And there is a day when God will bring justice. 
But that justice will implicate us who have in our lives and our minds broken his law and rejected his love. And that is the condition of the world today. That is the condition of humans today. But the love of God is so much toward people who choose not to love him that in Jesus, God comes in a flesh and blood body. He takes our sin, though he did not commit it, and gives us his righteousness, though we did not achieve it. And he suffers and dies for us. He experiences the wrath laid up for us on the last day. He experiences that for all who believe in him. Yet he rose again from the dead. And all who believe and receive Jesus Christ will have peace with God. They will have a new relationship with him. Every single one of our sins forgiven by him. When we trust him, we no longer have to fear that day that is coming. Uh, Because even now, while we place faith in him, we are currently justified before God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't have to wait until that day to be justified. We're justified now. And so in him, we can have hope uh, because it's no longer based on our good works. It's no longer based on how good we are, how um, helpful we are to other people. It's based completely on Jesus. And so in that, we can have hope. Can I get an amen from someone? Goodness. <laughs> and, 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 and although... Uh, This doesn't change the fact that in this world, we will go through real difficulties. We will go through real difficult times. We will experience uh, grief from uh, deaths in our family. We will experience death. We will experience miscarriage and depression and relationship issues and violence and shame and struggle with sin and weakness and addictions. In Christ, we can still have hope. We no longer have to fear that future day, but we also don't have to fear the now because somehow, even though, or even, because even the worst of what we suffer is being used by God for our good. You know, in whatever we suffer, God is burning out the corruption that is within us and is making us more like Jesus. Uh, He makes real for us that he is our father and that we are his beloved children. And we can walk this world with the hope that uh, one day everything will be made right. Everything wrong will be made right. Every painful question that we have will have its final answer. Sin and evil and injustice that exists within us and that exists within the world will come to its end. And until then, God holds on to us so intensely that nothing can separate us from his love. These are the mercies of God. God is so dedicated to us and so so committed to saving us and to helping us when we struggle in this life. It's as though he marries himself to us. And he gives us hope in all things and also hope beyond all things. 
And so based on all that mercy, the only rational response is to give him uh, what he deserves for being so kind, which is everything. You know, we were singing earlier, you're, you're worthy of it all. That is everything. That is the essence of being a living sacrifice. It's giving and dedicating our very selves, all of our lives, to the God who saved us. You know, it's saying, it's saying as uh, uh, John Wesley once prayed, um, I am no longer my own, but yours. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. You are mine and I am yours. And we can say the same. We can each say if we trust in Christ that Christ is mine and I am his. But dedicating ourselves or our bodies isn't just an outward expression uh, because it's, it's possible to outwardly live right uh, while not being right inwardly. We can be right on the outside, uh, but inwardly uh, wrong. And so being a living sacrifice to God involves a true inward transformation. And so verse 2, uh, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the ways of this world. Or more literally, uh, do not squeeze into the mold of this world like, uh, like, wet, play, like wet, wet clay or Play-Doh. Uh, that doesn't, you know, you know, that is... Don't be so easily shaped and formed by the values and trends and narratives and ways of thinking that the world wants us to fit in. You know, don't just go along with things because everyone else does it. Uh, uh, just so you can fit the mold, so you can fit the, 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 the imprint of what everyone else does. Now, why is that? Is that, is that because as Christians we want to be a you know, weird separatist cult? who just don't like uh, uh, any, what, what anyone does, and you know, we're going to you know, be a bit Amish. <laughs> it's not because we want to be a weird cult, but it's because the way of the world around us is corrupting. Uh, Romans 1, it's full of envy and murder and lies, hatred of God, twisting God's good creation for the sake of pleasure. The world's way leads to sin and to death. And if we are to be a living sacrifice, we cannot squeeze into ways that lead to sin and death. But Paul goes on, we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, Paul, Paul, so Paul doesn't say, uh, don't be conformed to the world, but be conformed to Christ. Uh, but he says, be transformed. Uh, the word there is passive. Uh, that means it's happening to you. That means, let Jesus shape and mold you. Because in his hands, we don't just follow a new pattern, uh, but we become new people. As we give our whole selves to him, uh, he will transform us. So, you know, let him, by his word and spirit, renew our mind, not only changing what we think, but also changing how we think, how you understand the world, the news and history and Instagram and, and politics and personal relationships. Let him transform your worldview. 
There is so much uh, information available to us, so many philosophies and self-help or self-help therapies and, you know, influencers and moralities and experts. How do we as Christians uh, make sense of it? Not only that, but there are so many options of what we can do with our lives. Uh, How do I lead my family? What job should I take? Uh, How should I spend my time? Our ultimate question is, how can we know the will of God? In, um, in the 1800s, uh, they began building iron ships, right? And to hold the, the structure of the ships together, uh, they used thousands of uh, steel and iron bolts uh, to, to keep the different parts in place. Uh, and they were all magnetic. And, you know, the bolts would be all over the ship. Uh, the bolts would be at the front of the ship, which is the, uh, the bow. And then at the back of the ship, uh, the stern, there would be bolts that would hold... Uh, everything together, right? But in doing so, uh, they used so much magnetic metal uh, that created such a strong magnetic reading that it would confuse sailors because when they would use a compass to figure out where they were going, uh, you would go to the front of the ship and it would tell you that north was that way. Then you'd go to the back of the ship and it would tell you that north was that way. And so it would confuse the readers and, and, and it would stop them from understanding which direction they are supposed to be going. And in a similar way, our minds that are so affected by sin and the world around us cannot in itself make sense of how to fully know God's will. In our minds, if, if, you know, if our minds are a compass, the magnetic readings of our minds are way off. Uh, we, we, we struggle to understand which direction we, are, you know, we ought to go in. But as we give ourselves over to God, and He changes not just what we think, But how we think, he recalibrates our system so we know his perfect will for us in the world. And his word and his Holy Spirit are key in how he helps us to do this, how he helps us to discern what is his will that is good and acceptable and perfect. But Paul shows us something really interesting about a transformed mind, which leads to our next point, which is our active and gifted bodies are for the body. The first thing highlighted about a transformed mind doesn't begin with what you think about the world's philosophies and uh, theories and politics out there. Uh, It starts with how you think about yourself. We see that in verse 3. Transformed thinking starts with a correct assessment of self uh, because we naturally give too much importance to ourselves. Uh, That's why I I began with talking about our individualistic mindset. Now, we tend to interpret everything through the lens of me. We ascribe to ourselves the greatest importance. Uh, We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. You know, no one should offend me. Everyone should celebrate me. I need self-love. We exaggerate individuality, and that creeps into our thinking. Uh, But verse 3 says that, or 
This verse is saying that the mind that is transformed by Christ knows how to rightly think of or assess his or herself. When people get drunk, um, they have a higher, a higher perception of themselves and their abilities and their importance. Uh, and we are naturally drunk on self. But verse 3 says we are to think with sober judgment. That is to have a, a sound and humble mind. And that helps us to understand what the church is and what church life is supposed to look like. Because a humble mind, uh, in verse 4 and 5, realizes that when we come into Christ, again, we may enter upon individual faith and with our individual bodies, but we come into a community, into a communal body. It's a bit like marriage. The individual man or woman goes into marriage not to be one by themselves, but to be one together. There's a difference. Marriage will fail if the individual only thinks of themselves as an individual and neglects responsibility to to those or to the one whom they've been joined. And Paul tells us, just like a body has many members and are all different, we are one body and are individually members of each other, in verse 4. When it says, a body has many members, uh, members is just referring to organs or limbs. And so a body needs a heart, it needs, a l- it needs lungs, a brain, arms, legs, a neck. <laughs> it, needs, it needs all these different things. And when you think about it, none of these, um, none of these organs or limbs are the same. Um, they are not like each other, and they're not interchangeable, right? But they work in such a way to form a united whole. So the brain is not like the lungs, and the heart is not like the spine, but they work together, and when one of those is damaged, it affects the whole system. And that's really important, because the point is, everyone has a place here, but we must know our place. Everyone has a place. We are all unique in personality and in our passions and in our gifts, but we must know our place. Our uniqueness isn't to swell our heads, but it's to help us to work together as a body. Um, An organ or a limb by itself doesn't make sense. And if an organ or a limb becomes too big, it causes a problem for the rest of the body. So if a heart is too big, it causes a problem for the rest of the body. If an arm is too big, it weighs down the body. And so everyone has a place here, but we must also know our place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Since the church is a body made up of many members, no separate member can transcend its own individuality. Each preserve their identity and function within the body, united in service. And this is shown specially in how we use spiritual gifts for the body of Christ. 
Um, the spiritual gifts uh, in verse 6 mentioned here are um, the, the word is charismata. They are literally grace gifts. And if you're unfamiliar with the spiritual gift, they are essentially a gracious gift or ability given by God, the Holy Spirit, to, to a believer to serve the church. <clears throat> and so Paul gives a list of these spiritual gifts uh, that God administers to his church. Now, um, a few notes about the gifts um, are, first, they are grace gifts. That, that, that means they are not something that you can earn. Um, they are not something that you can buy. Uh, they are gifts or abilities that are given by the Holy Spirit. The second thing is that in our text today, uh, and in, in, in Romans 12, uh, we have a list of seven gifts, and they are not the only gifts that are mentioned. Uh, another list is mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and, and Ephesians 4. Um, and so this isn't kind of a complete, uh, a complete list. Uh, and the third is, I think, I think gifts are very complex. Again, there's you know, a debate of, about whether or not the gifts still exist in the church or, to, or are to be used in the church. Um, I, I, I think in themselves, you know, p- perhaps I don't think everyone has just one gift, uh, but maybe gifted with different things. Um, so have that in mind uh, as I go through the list. Um, but verse 6 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, uh, let us use them. We should seek to use our spiritual gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, prophecy is the kind of the, the most tricky one to define. Uh, but prophecy is a, it's a divinely inspired delivery, um, word delivery of comfort, uh, instruction, warning that is given to the church. And it has to be in line with God's word, and I'd argue it, it needs to be given by the Holy Spirit, that if the Holy Spirit didn't give it, it wouldn't otherwise happen, right? So, so it's hard to say what that looks like uh, practically, and I want to be really careful, especially, and you know, I'm not an elder here, so I want to be very careful about how I, about how I describe this, but, you know, perhaps, perhaps uh, you know, the average Christian is, is, is reading God's word and is praying for the church, and the Lord lays something clearly on his or her heart, and maybe in a members meeting, or uh, when there's a a time of open reflection perhaps, or or in a prayer meeting, um, they experience an extraordinary burning in the heart to share what it was that the Lord has given them. That might be prophecy, right? Right? So prophecy is not necessarily uh, a foretelling, i.e. telling the future, uh, but it's forth-telling, speaking God's word in a, in a really timely and relevant way that addresses specific needs of the body. Uh, so it's not always necessarily telling the future. Paul says if you, if you are going to prophesy, you need to do it in proportion to your faith. I think the, the, New, the New Living Translation uh, helpfully says... Uh, to speak out with as much faith as God has given you. Uh, you might have something on your heart that you really just want to share, not for your own sake, but for the sake of everyone else. Um, you need to do that in accordance with how much faith that God has given you to, to, to really believe the words that you're, that you're sharing and then to share it. The, the important thing also about prophecy is that the words that are spoken aren't just accepted 
You know, someone can't just come up and say, thus saith the Lord. And then it's like, ah, oh, yeah, he said it. He spoke God's word today. Uh, it needs to be weighed up by the elders and also by the word of God. And so there's a sense in which prophecy is verified uh, by God's word and by his elders. The second gift is if service, then in our serving. Um, and this is essentially an inclination to practical service. It's quite broad, but it's talking about people who are, are, are really willing and ready to give practical help to the needs of the church. Um, these are people who serve with more words or more actions and less words. The third is if teaching in our teaching. Uh, if you can teach, then teach. Uh, this is opening up the scriptures to instruct others and help them understand God's word. Uh, so here at Ecclesia, you know, Pastor E, Pastor Rob uh, have always labored hours on end, late at night, to break down the scriptures in such a way that is understandable and digestible. Um, um, I have I, I sometimes even think they should be sponsored by you know, Microsoft PowerPoint, the way they love slides. Just to be, but, but, but they do that extra work just to make it clear for everyone to, to, to understand what, um, what God's Word is saying. They, they, they really seek to, to use metaphors and, and, and clarify and deepen the meaning. And I think that's a gift. That's, a, that's quite a significant gift. Um, it's a... It's a service and it's a responsibility. Uh, it's not just an opportunity to have your voice heard. Um, it's other person-centered. You want the other person to understand. You don't just want to sound smart. You don't want to, you know, just want to sound like you know it all. But you want the other person to understand. You want to make God's word clear for them. <clears throat> Another thing also is that it's a dangerous calling. James 3 verses 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, for you will be under greater judgment. Um, and so you're probably thinking, yeah, I guess if you want to teach it, um, uh, uh, it, must, you know, it must have to be a gift uh, because anyone who does teach has to be under greater judgment. That means they will be judged uh, uh, more strictly than those who don't teach. The fourth gift is uh, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Um, exhortation uh, just means encouragement or comfort. It's building people up and strengthening those who are struggling in their faith. Um, it's helping them to trust God, to trust God's promises. It can be negative encouragement, I'd say sometimes, when someone might need correction, uh, but it still builds them up. It can also be positive encouragement, where you're just strengthening a believer, encouraging them in their gifts. Now, I think this is, this is a really necessary gift, um, because some, sometimes it can feel as though few people can provide words or deep words of comfort uh, that when you go through a difficult season, um, you know, not many are able to speak to you in such a way that, that really drives God's word or God's truth for you home. You know, sometimes you can be going through a really, really, really deep season, uh, a, a really hard time, and you just pour out your soul to someone, and all they can do is pat you on the, soul, on the shoulder and say, ah, oh, mad thing, you know? <laughs> it's like, and then they start talking about themselves. 
I think it's, it's God's gift to his church that there are people who are able to speak to you in such a way that drives you to trust God's promises and get comfort for your soul so that you can face a new season. The fifth is the one who contributes in generosity, or perhaps more literally, the one who uh, is gifted in being generous, uh, give liberally. And so this is speaking about people who are gifted to share with others whatever resources they have, whether it's financial or whether it's material, to meet the needs of the church and to expand God's work. The sixth is the one who leads uh, with zeal. Now our, now, now, our culture doesn't always like the idea of authority, but we need leaders. Uh, we sometimes want everything to be so egalitarian that it's a free-for-all and don't realize that sometimes that produces chaos. We need people who are able to create order and govern well. We need people who are capable of loving instruction, uh, lovingly challenging and and inspiring people and giving them a vision. The church suffers without good leaders. And not only churches, but homes and communities and governments and cities and nations, they suffer without good leaders. And the leader must not, all, must not just lead in any old way, but he has to do it with conviction, with eagerness, to get the job done for the good of others. The final gift mentioned here is um, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, I guess an act of mercy is, is, a, is an expression of God's love in practical and relational ways. So it's giving substantial and... Um, it's given real sympathy and sensitivity to those who are suffering, right? It's giving long-term help to those who need it. It's giving them support, whether it's visiting them in the, you know, visiting people in the hospital, uh, visiting the homeless and the needy. Uh, it's also in, in recognizing injustices within communities and devoting yourself to the, the actual long and hard work of trying to bring about change. Uh, for people who are less fortunate. And the distinct feature of mercy is that it must be done with cheerfulness, not resentment. You know, I must say, you know, many justice groups today are, are filled with lots and lots of resentment and entitlement. The, the, the initial act of mercy turns... Loving or an act of mercy without cheerfulness turns loving people into hate groups. It turns mercy toward women to hate in men. It turns mercy toward ethnic minorities into hating uh, white people. Acts of mercy are characterized or should be characterized by cheerfulness. Uh, literally happiness. So those are the, the, the seven gifts. And I think there are just three, um, three key important points um, about these spiritual gifts that, that, that I think we should really understand. 
Um, again, the first is that you have unique gifts, but they're not for you. You are not the point of your gifting. Others are. God gives so that we can love and serve our neighbors. The second point is that these gifts don't only serve the church, but they model Jesus Christ. You know, as his hands and, and feet, as members of his body, uh, they reflect him. So you think of prophecy, uh, Jesus is the final prophet. Uh, you think of service, Christ served the needs of those around him. Teaching, Christ taught about the kingdom of God to show us what God's kingdom looks like. Think about exhortation. Uh, Christ brings comfort to his hearers when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know, he is encouragement and comfort personified. Think of generosity. Uh, Christ was generous. He, he freely gave his whole body on that cross for us. You think of leadership. Uh, Christ is our leader. He is our shepherd. He is the, the, the pioneer, the author of our faith who calls us to follow in his footsteps. Think of acts of mercy. Christ constantly acted mercifully. He spent his time with social outcasts. He touched the sick. He healed lepers. He wept with those who were grieving. He raised the dead. He is merciful. And so all of these gifts are not just gifts that are good things, but they actually reflect Christ as we are his body. The, the, the third important thing I'd say as well is that we should think about how we've been served over the years in this church with others who have used their gifts or by others who have used their gifts. Um, Christ, through them, was serving you. Uh, they were his hands and feet to serve you. They were individual bodies working together as a single body of Christ to serve you. And, and we have to be thankful for that. And perhaps we can reflect on how God might be calling us to love and serve other people with the gifts that, that he's given us. You know, if there's a, if perhaps you were listening to, to the breakdown of the, of the gifts, if there's a gift that stuck out in your mind um, and, and is a way perhaps that you see things, uh, maybe that's your gifting. And um, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't say any more about how that works out practically. I'll, 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 I'll let the elders uh, lead you in how that might be practically worked out uh, uh, in, this, in this local church. So we've seen that God's mercy activates our bodies and transforms our minds, and that our active and gifted bodies are for the body. And in this last section, uh, verses 9 to 13, we, we, we see a really crucial point, and that is the body must be active in love. The body must be active in love. What should be the motivation behind using our spiritual gifts? Love. Uh, but love today is, is an overplayed and overused term. Uh, we use it so often and very rarely define it to what it looks like. 
Uh, but love is supposed to define our relationship with one another. And I think verse 9 to 13 give us a good picture here. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Um, that is, love should not be hypocritical. In other words, love should be one-faced, not two-faced. Uh, you should not do an action of love towards someone in the spirit of, you know, what am I getting out of this? Uh, you shouldn't present as though you care for someone while really caring for yourself even more deeply. Uh, love needs to be genuine in the Lord. And I think this is hard because we are inclined to love based on liking um, or being fond of certain people, right? But real love is impartial and it's not based on natural liking. And again, that's hard uh, because there are people that we struggle to like. Uh, someone just ran through your mind as I said that. Uh, <laughs> how can we love how can we love them? How can we love someone that we just, we just struggle to like? They speak and it's just like, ah, you know, how do we, how do we love them? Um, I think, I think C.S. Lewis, I think he speaks really practically and really strikingly on this in mere Christianity. I'm just going to read a quote that he says. He says, love is not an emotion, but a state of the will. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. But if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Uh, I interject here, but, 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 it won't, it, but it won't work if... You try and fake it and just try and show how good you are, right? Love has to be without hypocrisy. Uh, C.S. Lewis continues, he says, But whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God and desiring, and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love a little more or at least dislike it a little less. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on. And I think that's really insightful. That's one of the, one of the tricks um, to showing love without hypocrisy, especially to people that we struggle to like. And the key is to pretend. Once you pretend, it becomes actual. Verse 10, uh, love one another with brotherly affection. That is uh, literally uh, family love each other with brotherly love. Um, I think the point is really clear there. Um, uh, the point is that Christians are bound together as, you know, by a family tie, as though they were blood. They are to be devoted to each other like family. In Christ, we are all children of God together. You know, there's not, I saw, you know, it's not just me, I'm just a child of God, and I have stepbrothers and sisters, as it were. We are all full, fully children of God together. And he says that we should outdo each other in showing honor. That is, we should prefer one another. 
Uh, that, that means we should eagerly look at each other with respect and love and think, you know, and think of other people as, as, you know, they really matter. They really and truly matter. And I want to honor them. I want to respect them. Verse 11 to, to, to 13. Um, this kind of love, again, is not based on emotion, but it takes work, which is why Paul says in verse 11, uh, do not be slothful in zeal. That is, um, don't be lazy, <laughs> but you have to work hard. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Love takes hard work. Using our gifts to serve others takes hard work. You know, we have to actually be committed and put effort into loving each other. And I think, you know, I just want to interject here. I think, I think that's really important because there's so much talk about love today in the world. And everyone assumes that it's just based on an emotion. Um, everyone assumes that it's a given. Uh, but love takes hard work. Whether it's in a marriage, love takes hard work. It's not an emotion. It's a state of the will. Um, uh, lo- you know, everyone loves to say, you know, love is love, as if it's some kind of gooey, ethere- ethereal thing. Love takes really intentional and hard work. And there is a depth of love and involvement in each other's lives that we have to strive for and work hard for. And especially in a city like London, uh, where time, we're all pressed for time. Uh, we all have things doing. We all have family to see. We all have jobs to be doing, and so on and so forth. Um, and so the culture of, of city life um, means that it's harder for us to foster this kind of love. But we really, really need it because, again, an individual Christian cannot go long without the love of his brothers and sisters. We each need our brothers and sisters to help us in verse 12. They need to help us to rejoice in hope. You know, when we're, when we're discouraged and we forget the fact that we have hope in Christ, we need them to remember us that we have hope both in the future and in the present. We each need our brothers and sisters' help to be patient in hard times when life is on top of us and we're struggling to trust that God is there for us. We need our brothers and sisters to help us pray constantly and to pray for us constantly. We each need our brothers and sisters who will help contribute to our needs and we contribute to theirs. And we need to, to, to learn to do the hard thing of practicing hospitality, uh, which is not just entertaining um, people with our homes, inviting them to our kind of plush homes. Oh, this, is, this is my sofa. Uh, this is my, you know, thousand pound sofa. And this is my nice bookshelf. Many of us kind of think hospitality is, is based on whether or not a house is, is clean. Uh, hospitality is based on... Some of you are like, whoa. <laughs> but hospitality is based on letting people in. It's more than a clean house. It's an open heart. And so all of this is not easy at all. And it takes hard work. But as we dedicate our bodies and our lives to the Lord, 
and he transforms our minds. He, with the help of his spirit, uh, can help us use our bodies and our spiritual gifts for the body of Christ, for each other, together, loving God and loving each other. Amen. Uh, Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.